0: So I decided to take a little bit of a different approach with this talk, and hopefully I'll be able to help inform some of our future decisions that we may or may not need to make. Here are my disclosures. So the first question that we need to ask for BTKI um, progressors, is there a problem? I mean, that's always the best place to start. And the first question always is, is this really a need that we need to meet? so i 'm going to go back to the original Phase two study. This was the 1102 study, which has now have seven year follow up and the eight year follow up will be um, the final follow up that will be published uh, shortly, looking at one hundred and thirty two patients with CLL, and these patients were in two groups, treatment naive, that were over the age of 65 or relapse refractory and I'm going to treat all the relapse refractory patients as one group, even though we did start having patients at 840 milligrams and 420 milligrams before we saw no difference and we folded everyone into a 420 milligram cohort. So here we have our long-term outcomes, and what you can see here is that the progression-free survival at six years is a PFS of 88% in the treatment naive group and 37% in the relapse refractory group, and you can see the overall survivals of 88 and 58%. So is there a need? Absolutely, we still have this relapse refractory curve that is you know, very far much lower than our treatment naive curve, and the treatment naive curve is not a flat curve want to also show that for calibrutinib, where the data is much less mature, that we do have what looks like it's going to be a very similar-looking curve, where we see a basically an overall response rate of um, almost 93%, and that our median PFS um, in the patient's overall, I'm sorry, our um, 18-month PFS in our patients overall is going to be 90%. So this really actually helps to demonstrate that really is BTK inhibition that 's doing the job, and that we have an excellent group of uh, drugs to select from, and there will be more coming so is there a problem? Yes now, the second question is is can we predict who these people are and either treat them differently in the beginning or rescue them afterwards and important to keep in mind when we talk about this question is gonna be what is the downside to a person progressing? And given the fact that um, our progressors do have a tendency to transform, and the Richter's transformation is really such a lethal transformative event, avoiding it may actually be something that becomes very important. So I like to think about BTK inhibitor failures Is either being CLL resistance. So this is CLL that responds and then progresses, but is still CLL. And the other one is transformation, which is CLL that then responds. And then you have a Richter's develop. So two types of transformation, CLL versus Richter's. Now data here from uh, Dr. Wolak, and I do want to thank her because most of the data I'll be presenting today will be her data. The um, What we have here is a cumulative incidence of discontinuation of ibrutinib by cause. And what I'd like everyone to take a look at is the yellow line, which is the transformations, and then the, um, I apologize for my inability, whoops, to recognize colors. Um, But then we have our second line here, which are CLL progressors. And what I really like to emphasize here is sort of the two year um, rate at which the transformations are happening and then the plateau as compared to the very slow start at two years um, and then sort of the continuation with the CLL progressors at five years. What's gonna be really most important, and I anxiously await the follow up paper, is whether or not there is a plateau there. And some data that's come out of uh, Jan Berger and Dan Landau's work, looking at these patients who develop these BTK mutations and retrospectively, looking back by looking at the kinetics of cell growth as to when did these cells develop the mutations, really suggests that these mutations are happening here during the watch and wait period before the patients are getting exposed to the BTK inhibitor. Really suggesting that it's ongoing clonal um, instability that's leading to clonal diversification and leading to these mutations developing, and then we're applying the pressure, allowing these mutations to grow out. And that really does give us an idea of how we might actually help these patients going forward. So looking at variables associated, and one of the things that's important when we look at all these different studies is they're all powered to look at different things and they all find different things. So I am gonna borrow shortly from a couple of different studies. But what I'd like to really focus on here is complex karyotype and mic abnormalities are very significant predictors of transformation of ibrutinib due to a Richter's transformation, discontinuation of ibrutinib due to a Richter's transformation. Whereas complex karyotype 17P deletion in age less than 65 are significant risk factors for discontinuation of ibrutinib due to CLL progression. And those things in and of themselves, what I really like to highlight is the overlap that might exist between complex karyotype and 17P deletion really the idea that these are sort of those hallmarks of genomic instability. What I would like to also comment is on data that's actually um, from a couple of different sources, but I'm gonna focus on this one, that really suggests that when we look at the impact of TP53 allele loss on the outcomes for patients being treated with ibrutinib, using a variant allele frequency detection limit of only 0.2%, so far lower than what our clinically available NGS panels utilize, and looking at 21 treatment naive and eight relapse refractory patients, we're actually seeing that patients who had one allele that was lost and therefore one intact allele did not progress on ibrutinib, whereas those who had more than one allele loss or impacted by a mutation really were the ones who progressed. And so this is actually something that I think might be a very important picture of the future, and all of a sudden be able to identify that, you know, the thought that the 17 p deleted patients who progress maybe just have one allele that's out, but we know that far below our level of detection, they probably do have a cell that has both alleles knocked out, and that cell that has no functional T53 is the one that's able to actually mutate, diversify, grow, and come up with these mutations that are going to allow it to resist ibrutinib. So can we predict which patients will progress? And the answer is yes. And we saw from the OSU data uh, that obviously CMIC and um, complex karyotype for Richter's transformation as well as 17P deletion, uh, complex karyotype, and age younger than 65. Um, I'd like to add a little to the list, and this is where I'm borrowing from various sources, but NOTCH1 mutation, which is a very strong predictor of a Richter's transformation. Um, We talked about complex karyotype, and I do want to caution everyone that the complex karyotyping has to be done using the special CBG DSP-stimulated cells, and that's important so that you're only stimulating the B cells and that you're not inducing karyotypic abnormalities while you um, are getting them to divide. Interestingly, some early data suggests that there's a significant difference between obviously no complex karyotype and complex karyotype, but also between just having a complex karyotype, which is three or greater abnormalities, and a highly complex karyotypic abnormality, which is greater than five. Um, And then something that's not discussed here, but will, I think, be very important in the future, and we saw some data at the IWCLL, stereotyped B cell receptors. So we know that from the 4-39 V gene family, About half of these actually have um, sort of a similar pocket structure and a significantly increased risk of developing a Richter's transformation. And when you look at the 4-39 data, it's important to remember that we talk about a 40% risk of transformation at about five years, but remember that there's probably only 40 to 50% of the patients who have a 4-39 have a stereotyped V gene. So all of a sudden we're really approaching what might be a 100% risk of transformation. So when you get your reports back from the clinical laboratories that says 4-39, obviously that's worrisome. Hopefully that's not gonna be a stereotyped. So there's about a one out of two chance that that might actually be a stereotyped V gene. Um, but then the next question is, is so if we can identify these patients ahead of time using baseline data, is there something that we can actually do longitudinally to look at these patients? And this, once again, is data from OSU and Dr. Wojak, looking at a retrospective analysis of 20 patients who developed BTK mutations, namely in PLC gamma or BTK itself, and found that the clone was detected 9.3 months prior to clinical relapse, all right? And here what you have is basically your um, patients on the lines where you can see um, obviously the closed triangles are the mutants, and then going back, you can see the first open triangle representing when the mutation was not detected uh, using sensitive uh, assays. So all of a sudden now, we can detect these patients a median of 9.3 months prior to their clinical relapse, but now the question also has to be asked if that's of clinical utility. So if we're gonna follow all of our patients and have a subset of patients, you know, if we're talking about a treatment-naive group of patients, we're talking about a 17P-deleted incidence of about 3 to 8 percent who are going to relapse, you know, we're going to follow all these patients and see what happens beforehand, or do we just wait? And that's an important question because one of the things that can happen in a patient who's actually demonstrating this progression is this cell proliferation that's allowed to undergo can allow for these mutations, these secondary mutations that might lead to erectors. So this would be potentially a means to intervene in these patients to help keep the cells from having ongoing proliferation and stop the cells from potentially transforming, which is one of the, the means for developing resistance to ibrutinib. So basically, where's ibrutinib alone insufficient? Right. So picture the world where um, you know, we have data now for four years that 98.1% of patients who don't have a complex karyotype don't have 17P deletion and are older than 65 will be free of progression at four years. So I'd like to say for the CLL progressors, it's going to be 17P complex karyotype and age less than 65. And for Richter's, 17P complex karyotype MIC abnormalities, notch 1 mutations, stereotype B cell receptors, and um, purine analog and alkylator therapy just for those um, historical markers. I'm oh, sorry. Um, and those are the prognostic markers that really matter, and that's what I like to emphasize. So we have a huge array of different prognostic markers, but really, time to treatment, Um, and sort of um, those markers aren't going to be nearly as important if we have a great therapy that everyone responds to. So the way that we should be thinking about prognostic markers going forward is which one is going to cause our patients to not derive sufficient benefit from our therapies. So all of a sudden, IGVH becomes less important um, and a lot of these other ones. So how do we treat? BTKI progressors. So the first one is just to add uh, a second drug to the BTKI and see if we can take advantage of synergy. And this is one that's been done a lot in clinical practice. Some data will be coming out shortly, but the idea is that, you know, ibrutinib, when you do have a BTK resistant mutation, does still have an efficacy. It's just that it's not 24 hours in its ability to shut down the BTK. But it does shut down the BTK for a period of what might be four to six hours. So if you hit the drug, the cell at the same time with another drug like venetoclax, you might be able to get synergy and have an effect. And this is one that I've used um, quite frequently with excellent results. The next group are going to be the reversible inhibitors. And we have at least three right now that have been in phase one trials and um, the ARQ or the RQ compound 531 is probably the most mature. And we also have a Sunesis 062, which is called Vecabrutinib and LOXO 305, which has just entered phase one trials. And what's important about these agents is you can see here that the mutant BTK, and this is primarily the cysteine 41 serine mutant, actually has a lower affinity for ibrutinib. But that is what would be relevant if we were talking about a Petri dish where the cell was just bathed in ibrutinib continuously. What we really have is a situation where ibrutinib gets taken, we get very high levels of ibrutinib, and normally it's this covalent bond that allows the ibrutinib to stay continuously with uh, BTK and shut it down permanently. And then the ibrutinib is rapidly cleared. And actually for a calibrutinib, this curve is much shorter with a half-life of only 30 minutes. In the absence of having the cysteine there to covalently bind the ibrutinib, you basically end up with the ibrutinib up here basically coming off the enzyme and then being degraded. And this inhibition sort of following also this line to being dropped back down to what would be um, sort of zero. And that's sort of what gives rise to the problem with our agents when they have the resistance. So if we have something that had a 24-hour half-life or basically a continuous exposure to the enzyme, all of a sudden we'd be back to doing it in the Petri dish where we didn't have to worry about the body's metabolism. The biggest problem with that, of course, is going to be toxicities. So I suspect a lot of the toxicities that we see with ibrutinib might be related to the EGFR inhibition, if we have 24-hour EGFR inhibition, that would probably be too toxic for most patients. So all of a sudden now having reversible inhibitors that are able to hang around for 24 hours because they're better, more selective really becomes a very good strategy. And you can see here how we have with the um, SNS062 sort of a significantly better ability to bind to BTK that's mutant compared to ibrutinib and acalabrutinib. And what you can see here is a relatively, the relative fold activity um, for vecabrutinib. Now vecabrutinib also has improved specificity and it's the specificity that really allows us to do this. And in particular with the tech kinases family, you can really see that only, you know, the tech kinases are the ones that I show there. It's really just BTK, ITK and tech that are inhibited, and the non tech kinases, we really have no EGFR inhibition, um, and that really saves us a lot of issues with toxicity. Now, looking at the arcuel compound, you can see here that it's actually much dirtier of a kinase, so it's far less specific, but you know what? It works, and it hits the right kinases, and it avoids the right kinases, and it's, you know. Whether, whatever it be, it actually works and that's what really is most important here. So you can see here the relative inhibition and you can see the um, different classes that the kinases belong to, namely the SARC, the TEC and the Turk kinases. And what's also nice about the data that we have on Archeol 531 is that you can see here that we really do have plasma concentrations that are sustained for 24 hours. So here you can see on the first dose, very rapid onset and very persistent levels. But here when we're looking at day 22, you can see that the levels haven't fallen by the pre-dose. And so we've now been able to achieve 24 hour inhibition. Um, And actually the RQL data, um, which will be hopefully coming out soon, does actually show at the higher doses, a significant amount of disease reduction. And so hopefully this will be something that will continue to improve um, with further dosing. And then LOXO uh, 305, just to share the specificity, once again, very specific for BTK itself, which really will allow for continuous dosing and excellent tolerability. So the other way that we can possibly treat these BTKI progressors is by novel agents, and there's an array of them that you've heard about today and many, many more. So VLS001, which is a toxin conjugate ROR1 antibody, AZD5991, which is an MCL1 inhibitor, and then, of course, CAR T cells, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, But I do want to, in the last couple of slides, talk about preventative measures, because as I mentioned, we might be able to predict these patients ahead of time and even identify these mutations beforehand. So patients who are at high risk of developing a mutation or developing resistance to ibrutinib, which is how I think we should be thinking about high-risk disease in the era of 2019, or in the year 2019. Um, is basically, what about initiating treatment early in these patients? Instead of allowing these patients to sit during the watch and wait and have the genomic instability enable the mutations to occur that will become resistant mutations, what about initiating therapy earlier on? It's going to be important that we have well-tolerated therapies that are not genotoxic so that we're not starting that clock on secondary MDS and AML. And the second option would be just to start combined therapies from day one And we actually have the CAPTIVATE trial, which is um, actually completed enrollment and is currently maturing, where patients after a three-month ibrutinib alone then have venatoclax added and receive 12 cycles of ibrutinib plus venatoclax. And there's a randomization, which I'm not going to go into, but results in a very significant depletion of disease. Um, We also heard about the Alliance and ECOG trials looking at a randomization of patients getting ibrutinib. Venatoclax or ibrutinib. I'm sorry, ibrutinib obinutuzumab, venatoclax or ibrutinib obinutuzumab um, by itself. And then, of course, the list of other combinations just goes on and on and on, and this could be infinite. And with that, I thank you all for your time.